Hey friends, special announcement before we start this week's show. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, started an amazing golf brand called Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B, json.com to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Awesome, awesome guest here. Thanks to friend of the show, Steve Brinkman, for the hookup, because this is going to be a good one. So today's guest is a CIS national champion and was MVP with the Winnipeg Westman. While at Winnipeg, he was also a CIS academic All-Canadian. He's representing Canada in the World League Finals. He's played pro in Austria, Portugal, France, Israel, and Poland. And he was named the best setter at the Norseka Championships in 2011. Please welcome to the show, Dustin Snyder. Dustin, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, no problem, Josh. Happy to be here. This will be fun. So in doing some research for the show, you being a Manitoba guy, I understand you kind of had the the same conflict that a lot of Canadians have. Is I think you played hockey at a pretty good level and had to make the choice between that and volleyball. Is, is that true, or were there any other sports you were focusing on before you started to make volleyball like your main sport? No, you're right. You're right on the money. I'm from Brandon, Manitoba. So for those of you, you know your listeners, probably... Uh, a lot of them are out in Ontario. Brandon, Manitoba is two hours west of Winnipeg, uh, about 50,000 people. And if you don't play hockey and you're from Brandon, Manitoba, you're essentially, you might as well have three eyes or be an alien or something <laughs> like that. You are just an oddball. So, no, I was definitely hockey first pretty much all the way until, you know, I would say grade eight and grade nine when I started getting introduced to the, the club volleyball scene. Were you a part of a good high school program and that's what you knew what club volleyball was or did you play club first? Like what was the order that you realized like volleyball kind of goes beyond what maybe some people see in gym class that you could actually play it at a pretty decent level? It actually was, it was club first for me. So I was playing on my, um, whatever it would be grade seven and eight junior high team at, uh, my, my little school and, um, uh, a guy from our community, Bill Gad, who's a kind of a famous guy in Brandon volleyball community was making a club team. He had another generation of guys go through before us that had had some good success as well. So he was putting together this team. I was in grade six. My school was small, so I was playing with the junior high kids a few a year earlier. And he started putting together kids that he just thought were good athletes, like nothing to do with being good at volleyball. Put, put this small little team together. Uh, we started playing, and there was really no other club team in Brandon at the time. Like club volleyball, didn't exist like this is a it, it existed in Winnipeg but not so much in Brandon and um so we started playing uh, we just got our ass kicked like bad we just we, <laughs> we would go to these tournaments in Winnipeg and get beat up by some of the bigger club teams and uh, but it was a good learning experience like we had a lot of great six kids um you know so we were 11 kind of 12 years old and um, it, it grew from there pretty substantially he took us to the Western Canadian tournament in Calgary 
that was a huge like eye-opening thing like these hundred and some team tournaments for us as kids and you know really exciting to be there and just learn about like okay these are the top players this is what you'll need to do in order to be able to contend with them and um so that's where i got the start and then when a lot of those guys we kind of stuck together and ended up going to the same high school team in brandon and it was really us and um Nealon High School in Brandon, which is another one of the, there's three high schools. We, we both had good high school teams and, and formed a good rivalry, which was good for the competition level. Um, you know, actually another guy that is living in Ontario now, but played for the national team, Tone Van Langfeld. He was from a, a real small town in Manitoba. And so he was a big recruit for both of the Brandon high school teams. And he ended up going to Nealon. So he kind of fueled the rivalry um, in our little, little city. <laughs> nice nice and if you had to think about it when you were younger what was it about volleyball that pulled you away from hockey and some other sports like did you enjoy the challenge that maybe like you said your team wasn't the best at it but you enjoyed competing and getting better or what really stood out that you're kind of like I'm going to put the skates away and volleyball is going to be my sport yeah that, that was it at first you know it was something that I hadn't done very much of it was challenging because I wasn't very good at first like I, I was athletic but I just didn't know how to play the game at all and um you know, and then our team, you know, our coach made it fun. He, he had a lot of off-court training stuff that he was doing with us with, like, jump training and all this stuff. And, you know, he made it pretty fun for us. And then as we could start to see the improvements and our team getting better, and I started getting recognized with some individual accolades and stuff in the tournament, I was like, well, you know, this volleyball stuff isn't so bad. But then you get also, like, the negative reinforcement of, like, okay, yeah, this guy's okay right now, but he'll probably be done in a few years because he's not going to grow much past what he is right now based based on what his parents look like and stuff like that. So um, it was interesting. It was always kind of a seesaw battle between uh, what I would end up uh, trying to pursue. Nice, nice. And Ed, you mentioned being a part of a competitive uh, high school program and a competitive league. So when did university get on your radar? Like, were you recruited or did you start to look around and say, hey, I could play this at the next level? Or or how did it come together that you finally met with Larry McKay and decided to be a Westman? I think today, guys that are really top recruits start getting recruited much earlier than, say, their grade 12 year, right? So at the time when I started thinking about university, I, with my club coach, my original club coach that started coaching me, we went to BU and we hired someone to make this like scouting video. And I have, it was on a tape, like an actual (laughs) tape, huge camcorder. We did all different kinds of skills. We had some of uh, our spikers come in. We just made this like recruiting tape. Really wasn't much game footage. It was like individual skill work and then some highlight stuff at the end. We were going to start sending that out because at that time I was like, hey, I'm interested in going to play. And um, that was that was probably beginning of grade 12 type thing. I hadn't been recruited anywhere, right, at that time. Um, and then when I got into grade 12, the first guy that actually had called me was, uh, I don't know if you would be familiar with him, but his name is Scott Schutz. And Scott was a, a awesome like CIS player at, at um U of S back in the day and he was head coach of Regina. So if anyone knows like their Can West CIS history, Regina was like the absolute toilet bowl team (laughs) (laughs) of of Can West. Like I'm talking, these poor buggers would go a full season without a win many years. And so, you know, 
they were recruiting anyone with a pulse. Scotty was a great coach. He had coached me, eventually coached me on junior national team uh, after this as an assistant coach. And um, so he was really the only guy that reached out to me. And then prior to uh, club season in grade 12, Larry McKay, because, uh, you know, we were going through the provincial team circuits and all that at the same time. And we'd had some success with our Manitoba teams on the Western Canadian front and, and whatnot. And Larry McKay came to my house in Brandon before this graduating all-star game and said, these are the guys that I'm trying to recruit. You've all, you've already played provincial team and whatnot with all of them and had success with them. He's like, I want to build a team with these six guys going forward. Obviously, you're going to have older guys on the team now, but I want to, I want to get all six of you to come, and I think we'll have a chance when you guys get older. And so, you know, I had really good relationships with those other kids on, that he was recruiting, and we decided, uh, let's do it. Let's all go to U of W. And uh, that was pretty much it. Those were the only two schools that recruited me. You know, not many, not many people are after a guy that's like says he's six feet and is probably five eleven. <laughs> now that was interesting because when I did do some research for the show, like you being a Brandon guy, I thought maybe BU would be an option, or knowing what Garth did at Manitoba. But it, it sounds like Larry was really invested and believed in what you could do, and it just sounds like maybe the other guys you weren't on their radar yet. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah, and Brandon. Brandon didn't have a team when I came out of high school. Oh wow! So Brandon, I'm old. I'm old ass here. I, <laughs> I'm really old. I, you know, Brandon came in. I think I was probably in my Brandon's first year. I would have been in my second year or third year already at university when they had a team. We'd have to fact check that, but I know it's not my first year. Nice. So that wasn't even an option. And then you know, Garth. Garth traditionally had like his pick the litter. At that point in time, uh, you know, guys would go to U of A, of course, and some of the other bigger schools. But like Garth, you know, he he was after like a different looking type player, I would say, than, than I was um, physically more gifted, probably. And, you know, bigger, definitely than I was. So it, I wasn't really I, I never even had a discussion with Garth about going to U of M. Now, we had Steve Delaney on the show, and he mentioned leaving Ontario to go to Winnipeg. One thing that stood out uh, about Larry to him was Larry was full-time, and he dedicated a lot of stuff. And, like, even the video sessions, he would find a way to make it super interesting, whether it was, like, Steve getting a huge block and then, like, a clip from Rudy would sneak in or something like that. So (laughs) I'm wondering, your relationship with Larry, what stands out with you with what makes him such a strong coach? Because obviously you worked with him in university and later on with the national team. So what can you give us just a little behind-the-curtain look about what makes Larry McKay such a great coach? I'd say he's probably one of the most misunderstood coaches that you could, you know, possibly have because he doesn't say a lot. He he looks for reactions from guys and he wants people to try to figure out things as much as they possibly can um, for themselves rather than having to tell them every detail. He kind of weans, honestly. I think he attempts to wean people out by doing that. Like if you if you can't figure some things out, do I really want you here? I would say that's that's kind of his. Uh, mentality when it comes to that kind of stuff he i would say larry um interestingly enough so there's you know i have a i'm very negative towards coaches that like overcoach players during games overcoach players during practice like i feel like players need to be taught what they need to do they need to understand the basic skills they need to understand the systems that their team is playing and in a game is not the time to correct that stuff 
And I think it's a nervous reaction of a lot of coaches to still try to overcoach in that in that time of actual play. And it's really not uh, an effective tool because I think it just makes players nervous. It causes them to overthink um, when they're playing. And Larry's a master of that. He coaches in practice. He coaches in video. And then in the games, he's very quiet. And, you know, he'll give you some tactical things at certain points in the game, serve this guy, we're going to do this on block defense or something like that. But very minimal talking and coaching from Larry. Like, he really lets his players play. And he, he instills a lot of confidence in his players, I think, because of that. So, you know, that, that to me is his strength. He doesn't overcoach his players. Nice. And again, in doing some research for the show, you're in some really good company because you're second all time in Canada West for set assists per set, only trailing Brett Walsh, but you're ahead of Howitson, Schreimer, uh, Ben Ball, Brock Davidek, all these guys. And looking at the sets uh, for the whole career, you're third behind Walsh again, but I noticed that Josh McKay is on that list and so is Mikhail Clegg. So there's a ton of Winnipeg guys on this list. So specifically, what does Larry do for his setters? Because it looks like he'll trust a young guy to come in and take that important position, but it just sounds like tactically, you guys must be doing something special to have three guys on this all-time list, right? Yeah. Again, I think he gives you the freedom to explore what your game is going to be and then tries to just, you know, fine-tune a few things that you need to work on to get better. In in terms of my game, one of the things that I appreciate about Larry, I think, was I was an aggressive player. I didn't want to play the same as a lot of the other setters that were playing at that time. And he just, he didn't try to change that at all. He said... We're either going to be good enough to play like Dustin wants to play, and I'm going to let him do that. Or if we're not, then maybe we'll try to create competition within the team to bring in new setters, which he did while I was there. And, um, you know, then you fight to get better, and you, you, you play to be on the floor. And so he really just gave me the creativity, you know, the control of that creativity to say, okay, this is the kind of offense I want to play. Um, this is how I want to play it and, and give me tried to do the best he could to give me, I guess the tools and spikers around to, to be able to play that style. And, um, you know, so I, I think he does that with a lot of the setters and he just gives them confidence to, to go out and execute and not have to look over their shoulder. And how did you personally find the level in Canada West? Cause one thing I find that was super impressive during your era is, is yes, Canada West is, is winning nationals. And I think, they have all the way up until maybe Laval's run is maybe one of the only schools outside of the Canada West to take home a national championship. But one thing I thought was fascinating is the year you guys took it down, you didn't even win the division, right? So it just shows how good Canada West is that you can be like a finalist or a medalist in Canada West and still go on to win a national championship. So how, how competitive did you find the league? And was it a really big jump when you first left high school and club to go play at, at Winnipeg? Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a massive jump. And, and like, to be honest with you, Josh, like today where Canada West is at, there's much, there's many more teams than there was. And there's probably more guys playing volleyball too. But like, think about that concentration. If you take away four teams, you know, and then you have all those same players playing on four less teams. Like I'm, I'm kind of thinking of like, you know, original six, like NHL kind of thing. Mm -hmm. All the talent was on less teams. So it was a gauntlet out there to play. And um, every weekend you had a tough game unless you got Regina on the schedule. So, 
<laughs> in all honesty, it was just uh, it, it was a battle. Like coming out of high school, and you have to play. Like my first game was against. We had went through preseason, and I I was kind of playing about fifty percent time in preseason starting. This is another beautiful thing about Larry. He just won't let you worry about things in advance, right? Like, um, so I was playing about fifty percent time in preseason in my rookie season. We had a good team. We had some good older players, and um, uh, so coming into the first weekend of the season, it's a home game against U of M. A lot of like there used to be good fan support and stuff in the crowd at that point in time, and in, in Winnipeg for volleyball. U of M is ranked one in the country, and we're ranked three. And um, I don't know that I'm starting in the game until Larry puts it on the lineup card and shows us in the huddle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we're playing in front of a full gym. On the other side, we got, like, Mike Monday, who at the time was the guy in CIS. And you, you're just, okay, there you go. Go out there and, and play. So, you know. At that time, I, I think it was a massive jump coming from high school level to play against men when you're 18 years old. Like, you're, you're not a man yet. You're not as strong as those guys. You're not as physical. You don't have the experience. You don't know how to win the games. Um, it's it's just an interesting it's an interesting jump, and you really got to rely on your veteran teammates and whatnot to get you through the tough moments in those times. And how did you personally, and, and maybe the sense you got from the squad, like to think of expectations? Like the, the year you won CIS, was that a goal that everybody talked about? Or, or because the league's so competitive, are you just trying to survive each weekend and prepare for each team because there's just so much talent around that you almost have to stay focused week to week? I don't, I don't personally think in my first three years in CIS, I had a goal set to win the, the championship. I personally can look back and say I don't believe that I – set that goal to win the championship in my first three years, certainly in the league. I always felt like, you know, in my age group, one year kind of around me, one year below, our team was the best or close to the best. And I and I felt like we could win those national championships. Our third year, my third year in the league, we got very close and like my probably favorite teammate of all time, Ben Schellenberg, who was a you know player of the year in, in university, had a kind of a weird illness, which was undiagnosed in that year and was just very tired and like ran down the whole season. And he's not the kind of guy to say that out loud. So he would, he would never tell anyone that. But um, he just couldn't last in games. And we were very, very close to making nationals that year. And, and making some noise and kind of then you would have I think more people would have seen our progression as a team uh, show up on the radar kind of thing and it wouldn't have it would have been more expected what we did in our in our fourth year but I think coming into our fourth year I knew we had a team that was a top four team and then you know you get into a one game elimination in a national championship and you're a top four team you can win that's always been my thought anyways Nice, nice. And I, I'm curious, a, a setter of your skill level and tactics, how did you like to think of that Canada West schedule? Because here in Ontario, you might play a team first semester and you don't play them again until second semester where you're playing these back-to-backs. Like, would you like to think of it as strength on strength and what I did Friday night I can do again Saturday? Or did you feel the need that they're going to adjust so I need to change what we just did? Like, how much would the game plan have to change from game one to game two? Oh, man. All I remember, you know, in terms of that is uh, – those second nights are just a dogfight. Like, you know, usually the better team wins night one, 
I would find typically. And then night two just turns into a dogfight because you know each other so well. You know, our team at U of W, we had a lot of guys, I'd, I would say, similar to me, not necessarily top recruits. We were a scrappy team. We weren't the biggest team. We thrived on not making mistakes and playing defense. So I felt like, you know, we would pretty much stick to our game plan. And that second night, even if that game got tighter or was a closer match, we just felt real comfortable in those close games because we had a good feeling that we were going to make less mistakes than the other team. And, um, you know, we weren't going to change our strategy or game plan too much. We just knew that we could make less mistakes when the game got tight. And that that's where our confidence came from in those situations, for sure. How did you feel about taking down that national championship and being named MVP? Like, did that confirm that you could play for the national team and play pro? Or was that already on your radar as you started to progress through your uh, your university career? I had, I, I had no idea at that point in time. I was super uneducated about pro, uh, you know, and national team. I, I was cut from the national team the year after my third year of university. You know, so I, I had no idea what the future would hold in terms of what I was capable of or whatnot. I knew, um, you know, I felt like I belonged with the top players in the university, certainly in my fourth year. And I had trained harder in the off season in preparation for that year than I had ever done before. Cause I, I had some, uh, I don't know what the word would be. I'll try to use a good word. Angst. I had some <laughs> angst about being cut from the national team the summer before because you know, it was a tournament tryout camp, and I and I felt like I played fairly well, and my team did quite well in that tournament. And uh, you know, I didn't get rewarded for that, but so that motivated. That gave me a lot of motivation, and um, you know, so I didn't know. You know, there's so many variables when it comes to national team. Like, what are the older players doing? Are they staying around for a longer period of time? Are they still playing at a top level? Who are the other young players coming up? Um, so I really had no clue still, even after that national championship and MVP that I was going to be, you know, targeted to kind of step in as one of the guys that would be, you know, a potential uh, setter for the next, you know, while on the team. No, I think athletes today are are benefiting, I think, from the foundation you and some other players have built. And the reason I say that is, as a guy born in 85 as well, it felt like when you left university, you had to go to FTC where like Stephen Marr, Riley Barnes, and even like Eric Lepke and some guys who recently graduated, they're getting pro deals right out of their last year yeah. university where when you went to FTC, was that kind of the, the pathway that everyone had to follow? Like, uh, obviously, like there's there's some unicorns a little bit before us, like Paul Durden, who would go from high school to pro. But right. going from university to FTC, was that basically the logical step that everyone was doing? Yeah, I, you know, it was logical for a few reasons. It was logical because the coaching staff, like Glenn, and his and his thoughts were that we, as Canadian volleyball players at that time, were behind slightly in our skill development as to where we needed to be to be successful either with national team or playing professional right so if he's going to put you on the team and that's his philosophy which you know i i kind of agreed with at the time um great i'm more than happy to go to that ftc the second thing was our national team had fallen quite a ways down in the rankings at that time before uh, you know i i joined and um it just wasn't easy to get contracts like those first couple of years were an absolute grind to get a contract you know so you needed it wasn't like 
the 25th, 27th, and 40th guy on Canada's depth chart were getting contracts like they are today. Like, if you weren't playing in the 12 on the senior A team, you were not getting a contract a lot of times. Like, that's a totally different world, I think, than what you're talking about. You know, with guys that have, like, and I'm not taking anything away from those guys like Stephen Marr and Riley Barnes. Like, those guys are, are physically very impressive guys. Like, they deserve contracts coming out. But I think where we were at was we had guys that deserved contracts coming out. It's just the world didn't believe that necessarily. And how did you find your first experience at FTC? Like, was it necessary for guys to learn how to lift properly, train twice a day? Like, the, the schedule in Gatineau can be pretty hectic and pretty heavy for guys, but was that a benefit to prepare you for being a professional athlete? A hundred percent. It's it's way more intensive than what it is actually in pro. So it would totally get you prepared. We did ours in Winnipeg, actually. I was The team was still in Winnipeg in my first year of uh, national team and FTC, right? And um, we did ours with Chris Green, who, you know, was a coach, assistant coach at UMW and then an assistant coach with national team for a number of years. Phenomenal trainer of athletes. Like, you can't pick a better practice coach to run guys through drills and get them to be better at executing skills on volleyball court than Chris Green. He was he was absolutely amazing. I found FTC you know, obviously on the lifting side, I got a lot stronger. I got faster. I, you know, physically I got a lot better that year. And then I just had an unfortunate injury that started cracking up for me kind of towards the end of FTC, which did nullify a little bit of that. And I think that was kind of the, as FTC progressed, progressed, and then now still progresses. I think that's kind of the balance that they need to, or wanted to find with the players was like, we were training people to become you know, physically stronger, better volleyball players. But at what point in time are you going through that kind of overtraining mentality? And I'm just trying to set up the timeline here. You went to FTC for one year. And is that when you got the Austria offer? Like, how did your first pro contract come together? Like, how did you hire an agent? And how many leagues were you considering before you picked that club? Yeah, again, you know, for me, I had, uh, I played my first summer of national team would have been summer 2008. Okay. And that was just a training summer. We had no competitions. And then I started playing on, uh, I went to the FTC that fall. And I actually went over to Slovenia that uh, second half of that year and trained with a team that Glenn Hope was coaching over there called Oseha uh, Bled. I came back the following summer and the two setters on the team at that point in time were me and uh, Brock Davidek. And we were, we were splitting time, you know, a lot of, both of us were getting a lot of opportunities to play, which was great. And I went, and I got a good chance to play quite a bit of minutes in, in some uh, major tournaments that we were in that summer for us at that time. And then, you know, a couple agents were at those tournaments. I had went with Sim Gruton agency at the time, and we started to, you know, get a few little offers coming in and. I would have liked to have played in probably a better league early on, but at that point in time, the amount of money that I was getting offered and the team had some ambitions, and that's kind of where it fit in. So Nice. And how do you feel your relationship with Glenn grew over the years? Because obviously one thing that you've kind of always been labeled with is you're a smaller size setter, but as of somebody who's seen you play university, obviously like you're going to battle and you, you don't just 
get named an MVP at CIS unless you've really earned it, right? So in the Canadian system, how did you find Glenn kind of viewed you and could you be an international setter? Like, how did you feel about training and tactics and kind of the system he wanted to run with the national team? Were you a, a good fit from that right away or did you have some work to do to catch up to what his expectations were? Well, I think that's kind of why the fit worked in general was um, I was a setter first as opposed to a blocker and, and uh, you know, an above-the-net style player. And Glenn had coached for a number of years over in Europe and, you know, coached some great Canadians like Ken Greaves, like legendary Canadian setters like Ken Greaves, who were setters first. Like, you know, those guys are good athletes too. I'm not trying to say that they're not, but Glenn had a different, a slightly different philosophy on volleyball that the setter needs to be a playmaker, um, running the offense, um, and taking command of what our team tactically is doing in the game. And I think that's where we had good alignments on things. He also was interested at, in that time at pushing the pace of the game and playing some faster balls and whatnot um, the, on the outside of the court and also playing more in the middle uh, of the court too. And those were all strengths of mine. So I think, you know, he had started to identify me now in the fourth years. He was at, always at the national championship fourth and fifth year watching it. Those were strengths of mine. So I think we had an alignment of, of um, you know, my strengths versus what he kind of envisioned that how the team played. And that definitely helped. And do you feel that the club signing you shared that? Like, did you ever have a problem with maybe your agent hooked you up with a deal and maybe the manager of the club really liked you, but the coach didn't like you and maybe labeled you? Or every oh, pro team kind of knew what they were getting when they signed you? That is the biggest, like, you have no idea how unorganized professional volleyball teams are in Europe. Like, calling them <laughs> professional sometimes, I would say calling professional volleyball teams professional volleyball teams is the biggest joke, you know, we can ever make as Canadians, because it's, it's so unorganized over there. The management will have one goal. The coach will have a completely different mindset, and sometimes the coach won't even know who they're getting on their team before. Wow. It is just, it's a complete gong show over there. So, you know, I've definitely had my, while trying to still make things work, I'm a, I'm a pretty positive guy. And, um, you know, you'll, you'll get into situations where, like, I don't even know why I'm on this team. Like, they want to play a completely different style than what I've, you know, what I'm good at and what I feel comfortable playing. And, and the, the hitters on the team feel are, are completely different than how they want us to play. And um, so, you know, you run into those situations and, man, does it ever teach you a lot about uh, communication? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I'm curious, you're into coaching now and obviously you battled through this, but what can a setter do to kind of battle through? You mentioned, like, your, your ability to be – accurate and run the offense that the coach wants to do but what would you encourage an athlete in your similar situation like what can a, an undersized athlete do to really win over this position other than maybe accuracy and decision making or or are those the main pillars that you have to have if you're going to give up some size yeah i think if you're going to give up some size you have to play um fearless is the wrong way to say it i, I would say you have to play an aggressive uh style of game as a setter Thinking about accuracy versus being accurate is a very fine line to walk to. Um, I think you need to be accurate, but you can't be thinking about placing the ball. You have to be constantly in your game plan and tactics and, and just thinking about 
you know, I think keeping speed on the outside of the court has always been something that's given me a lot of success, uh, but not aiming the ball. Like, you know, be in your game plan, be in your decision making and just execute what you've been practicing the whole time. Uh, you know, being able to play uh, pipe and middle uh, attack has always been a strength of mine too. And I think those those things, being able to play those those same sets from unideal positions on the court. If you're small, you have to be able to make those little bit of higher degree difficulty sets than some of the bigger guys because you're not going to make points for your team on block. You have to be an exceptional defensive player and you have to score well in your serving rotation. Um, if you're a small player, your serving rotation has your opposite uh, attacker coming into the front row, who's usually quite a good blocker. So you have to be a very good defender and your serve has to be very effective and you can't miss it because those scoring rotations when you're in the back row essentially become like having two liberos in the back row, which is what I always thought of myself on defense, especially when I was healthy and moving well was, okay, well now we have two liberos in the back row on defense, right? That's that's very interesting that you bring it up and it makes a lot of sense. I'm curious with you not being a guy who gets a green light on serve then, would you try to move somebody a certain way or were you serving a certain zone or what would you think about the service line other than I, I can't miss because that's going to hurt my team? Like what were some tactical or, or things that you would think about so you could still maybe set up block defense or little things like that that you could earn these point scoring situations? Yeah, like especially with float serving, I found um, – I still needed to keep a certain pace on my my serve, like whether or not I should be missing or I wasn't given the green light to miss a whole bunch of serves. It's a float serve. You know, you're on the national team. You're a professional volleyball player. you got to make these serves. And they still have to be difficult. So, you know, I always tried to practice, I would call it my 85% serve, where I'm hitting my 85% speed and I know that I could get at least 9 out of 10 of these in at that speed. You know, and then I would work angles. So the longer the ball stays in the air for me, the more float I would get on it. So if I really wanted to, one, to start dangling and floating, I could serve from five to five diagonally or one to one diagonally, and I would get more float on that. If I wanted the setter, you know, sometimes if the setter was a, a taller guy and had trouble with his footwork, I would serve from our position five straight down the line position one because he would have more difficulties maneuvering under balls coming from that side had easier tendencies for us to block against if he was coming from if the ball was coming to him from that side so you know i think i think serving is finding a comfort level that you have and then increasing that comfort level in practice um, to the point where you can become pretty effective in the game without missing very much Nice. And, I, and I'm curious to ask you this firsthand because my circle of friends, when we were watching you play, this could be urban myth that we invented or it could be dead true. I'm, I'm really curious is you mentioned the speed to the wing hitters and we always thought your ball just had this extra hang in the hitting zone. And I'm wondering, was this something you actually focused on or something we maybe made up, but it just seemed like you could set the ball really fast, but it was always hittable and it always just seemed to be in the right zone for like Tone and Gavin and Fred for these guys to cut off in the perfect spot. So was that something ever discussed with Glenn or was that just maybe this mythical touch that we built you up to have <laughs> possibly mythical like i know for i know for gavin it took me a long time to get and, and you know it took me a long time to get this feel for a guy that's jumping like that you know and 
it's a difficult premise because it's still a fast set, but it has to go up, you know, into the absolute stratosphere when he was really, really flying. It, you know, I don't know if my ball hung up there for them, you know, in a special way or not, but I think it, with each guy, there's just subtle differences on the ball that you have to give them. And I think I just, I was conscious of that in a lot of this, in a lot of senses with different hitters of what they were capable. Each of them had a slightly different speed that they were capable of hitting. And for me, the guys that can hit it really, really fast were always the easiest guys to play with. But you did have to make minor adjustments for each guys. And I just, I think I was aware of that. And I'm curious what motivated you. Were you extremely internal or did you enjoy the external stuff of like proving people wrong? Like when you win an MVP, when you win a national championship, when you take Canada to a world league finals, are you thinking, Oh, this just confirms what I already know. Like I belong at this level. Or were you like kind of smirking a little bit being like all the people who didn't recruit me, they don't know what they're talking about. All the, you know, the games I've won, like I I'm proving that I'm here at this level. Like which, which end of the spectrum were you that you knew you were there or you liked that idea of proving people wrong? I definitely, I would be lying if I said I didn't like the idea of proving people wrong. That was a constant motivator for me in in anything, playing sports. So I definitely got a lot of that. It motivated me to get better. It motivated my competitive level. So I, I'm a pretty like, uh, you know, confrontational. I was a pretty confrontational athlete. I'm not an athlete anymore, but that stuff was extremely motivating for me. And when I look back, I don't think I would have become the player that I I became or had some of the successes that I had without that extra motivation to prove some people wrong. But I also don't blame them. Like they're going off a metric for their recruiting and, and picking their team that um, they've developed, right? And if I don't fit that, then I shouldn't be on their team. But I always my my personal thought was always, okay, just if I can get in the gym you know, with the other players and we're playing and practicing and then we get into game situations. Well, okay. I think I'll do really well. I always had confidence in myself for that. And then if I get on the team somehow, if I can make my way on the team, because I, I did well in those competitive settings in a tryout or, you know, from coaches analysis, then the coach's job is to then win games and, He's, he has to put out the players that he feels like give them the best chance to win or else that's his fault too. So I, I always just wanted a chance to get in the gym and prove myself and then I, and I felt like I would be in that conversation to be on the floor. And, and I'm curious if you could tell us about your experience or maybe advice you'd give to a younger athlete about how setters can work together but still compete because I think there's there's coaches out there that think like setters are almost like sports cars. You can have multiple, but you can really only drive one. So with you being linked with Brock early in your career and then Josh Houtson, which was kind of like an opposite body type, or maybe when TJ comes in as like the young guy who's being groomed to take the spot eventually, like how are you competing, but also like leading and making sure that you guys are a team and you're, you're helping everybody versus it's my spot and I'm not going to give it up or help out other guys. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. By the way, like all of those guys were great to work with. So I don't have any, like I have nothing but positive things to say about my time playing with them. In practice, you compete. Like you're literally paired six on six against each other. And, you know, as setters, if you're, if you're saying to me, you're not keeping track of who's winning more games on each side, you're, you're lying. And you shouldn't probably be there if you're not. 
right? So that's where that's where the the good part of the competition comes from. But then tactically, like you guys, you learn so much from each other because you have different things that you you see and think, and different strategies and and styles of play. Like so, when you're doing video, you're working together to develop a game plan with the coaching staff to play against a certain team, and as the setter that's sitting on the bench, your job is still very important because you have to be giving, especially as like a senior setter. So I'll use the situation of like me on the teams with TJ towards the end of my career on national team. If I wasn't giving him feedback of the things that I was seeing on the court, I'd be doing a disservice for our whole team. Who wants to be that guy? Like that's, that's just a bad attitude guy that no one wants on the team anyway. So I always felt pretty engaged in those games, even when I wasn't playing, because there's a lot of feedback that it's very difficult to get when you're the setter on the court. But the setter on the sidelines is seeing it through that lens from the back of the court and seeing that very clearly that you you have a lot of, you actually have quite a bit of impact on the setter that's playing and what he can do in the game. And I'm, I'm curious, does the backup setter get a voice then when it's time to change the game plan? Like when you're playing Serbia at World League and you have plan A and then you kind of can take a look and the setter on the court can take a look and go, well, no, no, Glenn, that's not actually what's happening. This is what's happening. The middle's not biting on our middle, so we can't run pipe. Like how much voices are in that conversation? Or was it really like when you're on the floor, you're the guy feeling it and you're going to be the one who says, we're going to plan B or plan C or whatever layer of the plan we're going to go into. Like how many voices go into that? Or is it Glenn saying, no, this is what we're going to do? I don't think that there's a straight answer for that. I would say the setter on the court always has the final say. Um, but if the coach doesn't like what they're doing, they're, they're, they can be pulled out of the game. And then, I, and then in another way to answer that question, I would say, um, you know, it depends who the backup setter is. If they're getting the credibility and experience of time of their understanding of the game from the coach. It, it's a, Would I have had that ability to be, you know, necessarily talking to TJ alone if I was in my first year as a setter on the team, probably not. But when I'm in my seventh, eighth year on the team and understand the system and what we're trying to do really well, that's a different story, right? And there's a level of trust between the coaching staff and you at that point in time to be able to do that. And and I love all the tips you've shared so far. I was just curious if we could talk about your vision or if you had to actually think about your eye work because when we had like Derek Epp and some other top university setters, I'm actually amazed how much the younger setters are learning. So did you like to be a guy who could look through the net and see if the middle was leaning one way or could you see where the guy in one and five were? Like what are some little things that you would draw your attention to to help support the decision of setting this hittable wall that you would do? Yeah, so we did a lot of work on... on um kind of periphery peripheral vision because i don't actually believe you have enough time to like do a full head turn and look and see a player actually make an early movement on the other side of the court because you have to start getting your uh perception down on where the ball is coming from but we did some um peripheral view stuff larry loved to do that kind of work with me and then the other thing i think was understanding tendencies of the other team uh, really well and then understanding the strengths and weaknesses of your own players. I think it, it sometimes it feels like or people will think you're looking and seeing what the other team is doing really well if you're having success just because you're using something 
in your offensive tactics that they're just not keying on. So it almost gives you the credit that, man, this guy has like eyes on the back of his head or something, but you're just doing something that they're just not really expecting at all in their game plan. You know, and that that's something that for me, I always focused on doing things like that, like especially with uh, playing balls in the middle to guys that other teams I knew wouldn't respect coming into the game. They're not going to jump with this guy, no matter how many times we have a good pass and no matter how many times we set him. And he might not be that great of a player, but if I can give him the ball and he's a middle and he's still killing 50%, well, that's still probably better attack efficiency than we're going to get from the outside. So it's little things like that that can make you look like you're actually seeing things on the other side of the court when you're not really. Nice. And this, this question might overlap with your last comments there, but I'm curious in the Canadian system, I think I'm not overstepping here by saying that like Gavin was the guy and he was going to get the most swings, but obviously the other team is going to game plan for that. So how would you draw attention away for him without overloading him? Because at the end of the game, if he's not leading in attempts, maybe Canada did something wrong because he is that special of a player, right? But it's not like you can set him every ball every time. So how did you guys like to approach? When did you go to him? Why did you go to him? How could you get other guys involved? Like you said, maybe you make a middle sub and you know they're going to be like not alerted for on the other side or, or what can a young setter do if their team's labeled as okay they have this stud and they're going to get a lot of touches how, how did you feel like you kept everyone else involved and a threat i think first of all like the easiest one to say is you have to play in first tempo and you know you have to play a certain amount of balls in first tempo or pipe tempo which is you know kind of a slight delay or secondary play off of, off of first tempo you need to keep the middle blocker at least somewhat thinking that he may have to jump quickly and not go back, not go back or go to the outside on your, your front row attacker. Gavin, Gavin's one of those guys like in, you know, in uh, off serve receive or off in tempo kind of passing. If you give him a good set in his spot, he's pretty much unstoppable. It doesn't matter if they read it right. So that was always that became something that I realized that in not necessarily in transition because that's a different situation, different approach for him, different speed of ball. But off of serve receive, you know, if I give him a good ball in the right spot, he's basically unstoppable. And then from there, you know, you're you're trying to lure guys away from him, and how smart are they going to be to keep following a thirty-one that you're only setting? You know, I don't know one out of six balls like it just doesn't make a lot of sense so by keeping the speed and whatnot and having your outside hitters in position four being fairly efficient too you know that'll start to draw the middle away a little bit but they they knew like the other teams knew that gavin was going to get the majority of the balls and you know who cares (laughs) (laughs) who really cares if you give him if you gave him a good ball at that point in time in his career off of reset receive um the likelihood was it was going to be a kill, right? And I'm curious if you had to sum up your national team career. Like, how do you feel about your era? Because I think from an outsider, the program really rebuilt and kind of set the stage for where it is now. But when we had Fred Winters on the show, I'm really thankful that he pointed this out, that in his era when he first joined the team and they weren't in World League, it wasn't necessarily a skill thing. It was kind of a money thing of why they weren't in World League and they didn't have a broadcasting deal and things like that. That he's like, they had a young gun, Fred Winters, but they also had Durden and Koski and Brinkman. So the team was good and they were doing well at international tournaments. They just weren't in 
World League because of money. In, in your era, to jump the ranking from kind of the, the 20s to a top 10 team, do you credit Glenn a lot? Do you credit the guys in the room? Like, what was going on behind the scenes that, as Winters kind of pointed out to us, there's a lot that goes into what your competition schedule can look like and what the team really did. So how did you guys kind of build it up, and what factored into the success that maybe early on in his era that the, the program just didn't have? Yeah, so I don't know too much about, like, the TV deals and stuff at that time, so I, I can't really elaborate on that comment from Fred, but, you know, what I would say is, you know, just like we were talking about before we came on here, like, uh, with programming, um, if you have a long-term, anything that has a long-term vision that can be actually supported financially is going to be better than trying to do your best this year and then reset the next year. And I think that's kind of what Glenn brought. He said, well, you know, what is, who cares if we can get whatever 15th or 20th in, in the world right now? Like, we want to be higher than that. Um, but that's not going to come overnight. So we're going to have to sacrifice some results probably earlier on in my tenure to build up a new group of guys and then establish some guidelines for developing young players. That makes a lot of sense to me, you know, whether it be business or uh, sports. Um, so I think that was one fundamental step that really helped change the program. And then he brought back great veteran guys for us to learn from in that young group, which was Fred and Brinks. Then on top of that, we had some key wins at key times. You know, and Glenn may may you may have been able to pull up interviews or have interviewed Glenn. We won some key games, like we so World League. Um, we were out of World League, right? When I first started, we weren't playing in that. And then there was a qualification period to get back into World League. Well, we had to beat Slovakia in Ottawa to be able to qualify for the first step of that. And Slovakia, you know, you hear Slovakia now versus Canada, like that's not even close. We were. Slovakia was pretty good at that time. They had a bunch of guys playing in Italy, really good setter. Like they were probably the favorite to beat us. And then we ended up beating them in Canada. That got us to a final qualification. And then we beat Puerto Rico to get back into the world league. So we won those games in just like perfect timing. We beat Serbia at uh, world championships. We still didn't make it out of our group, but we had Serbia, Poland and Germany in our group. But that got us funding from, you know, government funding and the Olympic funding because Serbia was the third ranked team in the world. So I think a combination of that long term goal uh, vision kind of and then and then some key wins at key times that started getting us some of that financial recognition really changed the course for us. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for for all that you shared. I'm just looking at my list. And one question I, I definitely wanted to ask uh, when you were playing pro in Poland, a volleyball crazy country, was it really helpful having another Canadian guy? Because the roster shows that you played with Dan Lewis. So I'm, I'm curious, how did that club choose to use their foreigner cards on, on two Canadians? And how helpful was that having a guy you knew in, in a country like Poland that's going to be volleyball crazy, but maybe not have the language skills, right? Was it just comforting with, with having like one of your guys there to play in a, in a league like that? Oh my God. Yeah. And, and Dan is like a legend in Poland too, because of his time with Belkatov before that. And so like, he's a huge fan favorite everywhere he goes there. And, you know, people that know Dan, like his antics on the court back in the day, super high energy guy. Um, 
just like you know one of my great friends from playing on the national team and and just a blast to live live over there with him and and play with him and see all the things that he was up to and people loved him over there so that was really cool but you know the two foreigner things like Dan played quite a bit more than me like we had Pavel Zaguni on our team and I was kind of brought in as because our second setter got injured and we had a pretty busy schedule with Champions League and uh, Cup and uh, our league schedule so I didn't do a whole bunch of playing other than coming in for like double sub and stuff like that but I sure as hell got a great learning experience because I played on that team and got to play with such good players all the time when I came back to national team that's that summer I was playing some of my best volleyball of my national team career um, just from playing at that level all the time so you know playing with Dan you know, it's always great having another Canadian or even American guy on your team that kind of speaks your language and has some of the same cultural things. And I'm curious for just our coaches listening, the, the value of the double sub in your mind, was it to change up the tempo and that other setter was going to come in and make other decisions? Or does that second setter really need to come in and carry over what the first setter has really done? Because you mentioned you were going to put in a good serve and hopefully get some digs and really maximize your rotations. But at the net, were you trying to carry on how the game was flowing or were you trying to disrupt it and, and do your own thing and bring like what the maybe the skill differences were in your game versus who the other setter was in the sub, right? I'd definitely be taking notes of like who was hot you know, who's been killing balls, uh, how have they been doing it from the bench before I would be coming in in those situations. Absolutely. And, and I don't always agree with the double sub. I don't necessarily always think it's the right thing to do. Um, on certain teams, though, it can work really well, especially when you have a big disparity of how well an attacker hits from the front row to the back row. If you're opposite, efficiency numbers go down significantly when they step into the back row, then that double sub can be quite nice, especially if your second setter is competent because then you get a front row attacker, right? And um, so if, if that second setter is close to the level or can at least run a game, plays good defense, has a good serve, I, I really like that. Um, but, you know, I'm not trying to do exactly the same things that especially like a guy like Pavel Zagumi would do because, frankly, I just can't. He's like way too talented. <laughs> and special as a setter so i would just stick to my my game plan and and what i was going to do well man this has been amazing thank you for for all that you've shared and i'm glad we could connect and get you on the show we might have to be a returning guest because i feel like there's a lot of stories that we we just didn't get to but i, I did promise you an hour so we'll we'll call yeah. it there but uh one thing we're just trying to build on the show is as you mentioned pro volleyball maybe in canada we think it's maybe a little bit more star-studded than it is and there's some experiences or or maybe just traveling playing a sport you you found some unique experiences so i was wondering if you could just give us a laugh of something you experienced through volleyball that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have come across in your life oh my god well there's too many cultural experiences and communication breakdowns for me to get into for you but i'll tell you uh I'll tell you a quick story, and this is more volleyball related, and it happened in Canada, but with another team uh, coming into Canada. So my first year on the on the national team, we had, um, like I mentioned already before, we had Chris Green as our coach. Now, do you know who Chris is, by the way, Josh? Uh, I do, actually. He was in Ontario and coached the Lakehead women for a lot of years and helped out with uh, some Team Ontario programs. I got to meet him, and, and everyone I know who's been coached by him speaks very highly of him. Right. Right. So, so Chris, I had a long history with him because he actually had coached me like as a 15 year old on provincial team and stuff like that. So I was very lucky to have him as a coach multiple times. Um, 
one of the, the running jokes with with Team Canada at the time was that like we didn't have a ball machine, you know, like the serving machines and stuff like that. We just had Chris Green because <laughs> he was the human. He's a definition of the human ball machine at that time. Like a ball machine couldn't hit more accurate. It couldn't hit harder than Chris Green, and he was much scarier than a than a ball machine. So we had developed this like sense of I guess comfort with him blasting balls off our chests and neck and whatever over the course of the summer because we literally did six hours of practice a day for an entire summer um, in Winnipeg. So you know, just like hearing like a gunshot or something like that, you kind of get like uh, numbed down to it over time. And um, so at the end of the summer, we had trained all summer, no games, no games. And Australia was coming to Winnipeg to play in an exhibition series with us and do some practice scrimmages and whatnot. So these poor buggers uh, from Australia, they, you know, get off the plane one day, relax, like jet lag, fuel. And I don't know if you've ever felt like what it feels like to play with extreme jet lag but or practice like it feels like you're drunk or something like you you just have no coordination uh it's a rough go so they're trying to play us in a practice and and so we're doing this three ball drill where you get a coach someone serves then the coach will hit a down ball and then the third ball is a spike on the setter so that you can do a transition set from either the front row middle or the libero, whatever system the team's running, right? And Australia is like good. Like they everyone's like guys that are playing pro already are like, oh no, so and so they're playing in Italy, they're playing in Russia, whatever. Like they, they have like good teams. And um, we are just kicking the absolute shit out of them. And Chris Green is our MVP because <laughs> he's hitting he's hitting these down balls at these guys and they are just not used to a coach with side spin and hitting the ball like this and the setter can't dig one of his hits so you know in a in, we play like this three set wash match they don't get over 15 points against us like and after the game we're all sitting there stretching kind of like in a group with Canada and Australia and they are just dumbfounded as to, like, who the hell is this guy? Where did you guys, where did you guys dig him up? Like, he just basically served us off the court. Like, you guys aren't that good. It's your coach. <laughs> Essentially beat us. So, you know, that's my uh, rated PG story of uh, volleyball history and playing. <laughs> amazing man well thanks for all that you shared i definitely learned a lot and it was great to connect and hear everything you accomplished as an athlete and everything you contributed to the program because i think everyone in your era definitely left it in a, in a better place and we're all lucky and excited to see what the squad can do you know when the olympics hopefully get organized and everything's back to normal but thanks for all that you did and i understand you're into coaching and still doing more so great to see you you know all you've accomplished and still more so we'll have to get you back on soon awesome well thanks for having me that was a lot of fun